0: He's smiling. He's like, Yeah, they keep telling me my oxygen's low and I feel fine. And I'm like, okay, well, the monitor's beeping and you're at 85%. So apparently you're not fine. So I ended up digging more. I said, okay, well, what's his recent echo? So on his echo results, it showed that he had an atrial septal defect. And on an echo, you can get your pulmonary artery pressures. His was 95. And so that was like
1: that is crazy. Yep. 95. I worked cardiac ICU at a really high acuity. Cardiac ICU and I never saw a 95. That yeah and he just chillin'
0: with his and he's 95. Chilling. So that's why I was like, okay, I need to call this in
1: Hey there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. Today I have a guest with me, Nick, all the way from California. He's a rapid response nurse and an educator, and definitely we share a lot in common because of those two passions. I'm excited to have him on my show today. We're talking about a really interesting case. So Nick, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
1: I would love before we dive into this case, just to learn a little bit about you. So Nick, what led you to become a nurse in the first place?
0: Sure. It wasn't definitely not one of those serendipity type of plans that, that I had growing up. But my first job, I was a CNA in a, in a nursing home. I had a buddy that in high school, his mom worked in the nursing home. He's like, hey, why don't you come over and work, work in the nursing home with me? You can be a, a, a PCA. They called it a PCA. It's like an orderly. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then there was this one time where I was working with a nurse. And for some reason, I I put on her stethoscope and I looked at myself in the mirror and it was it was weird it was like something triggered it was in that moment i looked at myself and i was like this this right here i, <laughs> oh, I looked love at myself that story. With the stethoscope. <laughs> yeah so it just that was like the trigger obviously i it didn't take it i know it took like almost another 10 years for me to finally get my rm but That was just like a pivotal moment was like, I could do this. I could see myself doing this. And so still wear my stethoscope around, still feel good about it. I graduated, got my RN in 2010, and then started straight into the ICU from there. Okay. Worked to just it was all things critical care. It was something that I knew from nursing school that I, that's where I belonged was, was in that critical care environment.
1: So from nursing home CNA to ICU, new grad nurse. (laughs)
0: Well, granted, yes, there was 10 years in between that. So I found in my early 20s trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I'm still trying to figure that out. But from a career standpoint, yes, it it ultimately led me to, you know, I always knew, you know, I'm good at taking care of people. I enjoy taking care of people. I love Alzheimer's patients. The old people are my favorite patients. But I ended up, like, once I went to nursing school, that's where you discover what you want to do or what direction you want to go, and it was always intensive care that was it that was that it was that semester where i was like nope this is it i love this arena i love the numbers and the complexity and i've made that my passion
1: awesome so besides icu what other nursing roles have you held
0: oh gosh yeah you do icu long enough you start to find yourself in, in other roles even if you're even if you want to or not but i've done preceptor i've done i've been an instructor i've lectured in different hospital settings Obviously, I'm a rapid response nurse. I was the, I led, I'm, I'm part of the AACN, the Inland Empire chapter. Uh, I've held some different leadership roles there over the years. I've done uh, from president right now, I'm the education coordinator there. And then of course, you know, the most significant is, is I'm, an, I'm a bedside ICU nurse. And I've been that for about 12 years now. All things ICU from cardiac to general surgery to uh, I'm in the neuro, neurotrauma unit now. Awesome. Where I, uh, I've been serving for the last... I don't know, seven or eight years.
1: That's awesome. And we talked offline that you also like rotate through the rapid response role within your hospital.
0: Yes, yeah. So in my particular facility, yes, the, we have a rapid response liaison, we call it. Um, so it's not so much a team, it's, it's one. So fancy. Yeah, yeah. They, we, we, we kind of created that that role, which has done really, really well. We have one nurse that uh, it's a bedside ICU nurse, but we, we have a team that, you know, the majority of them are trained in that role and so every shift there's one nurse that just does that they do proactive rounding they follow up they're, they're a great resource and a guide for the rest of the hospital all the nurses to call so Obviously, you know, we can always talk about, I'm sure you discussed that, too, uh, uh, surveillance with rapid response. So yeah, this is important as deal.
1: responding is preventing, right?
0: Yep. Yep. So that's that's what's, that's what's built into it. And we've we've seen some tremendous outcomes with that. So, yeah, I can I can talk all day about rapid response. I love it. OK.
1: <laughs> and then you're also an educator, which I love that. Tell us about the course that you have.
0: I saw a gap after I took my uh, the CCR and exam. And after I took the exam, I was like, man, you know, I, I spent too much time studying the wrong stuff. And then of course, at the time there was the material was, it was tough to try to get good study material and, and, and a lot of the stuff was outdated or um, it, was, it was just tedious, it was boring. I'm always looking at things like, I could do that better. and So I, I saw an opportunity and so long story short, I, I created an online e-learning course that helped nurses prepare and pass the CCRN exam. I don't know i've probably helped over a thousand now nurses pass the ccr and exam so i've kind of made that like my my side gig. so in addition to the bedside all my days off are are spent just marketing talking to nurses and then of course teaching i go to different hospitals and i put on two-day seminar sessions to help with ccr and exam review
1: that's awesome and i will say it's actually a really good course like why did you not exist in 2011 when I took my test. There's so much content, what's important, and you have just like narrowed it down to the meat and potatoes and you present it so clearly. It really is excellent. I would highly recommend it to those of you that are taking the CCRN. This is a great prep for the course. Thank you so much. Like Genuinely, I'm not just saying show. I genuinely thought it was really, really well done. Thank you. But let's talk about Eisenmenger syndrome. (laughs) All right. Yes. So this patient, first of all, this is a crazy diagnosis. If you've never heard of it, You're not the only one because whenever Nick said, hey, I had this cool case we can talk about, I too had never heard of this and had to Google it. So if you're like, what did she just say? I said Eisenbanger syndrome and yes, it's a real disease. So let's talk about it. So Nick, will you just drop us right in? Like you're working your shift. How did you initially get informed about this
0: patient? So I was doing some proactive rounding on the step-down unit, and that's you know generally, at least in, in my case, my experience, those are my my biggest customers, right, as patients in, in the step-down. They're like in that intermediary, they've been discharged.
1: Same, same.
0: Yeah, so, they're, they're, so I have a really good working relationship with, which, by the way, as step-down nurses or progressive care, I'm not sure where, where they call it in, in Florida, but... Just all due respect, man. Those those nurses are like, they're amazing. What they go through, so I want to give them props. I have a really good relationship with those nurses, and so I go up there and it's great. I'm high fiving everybody. Nick, I got a case for you. Nick, check this out. And so I'm just, it's a really cool relationship we have. So one of them, she's one of my favorite step down nurses. She one day I was up there just doing some proactive rounds. She goes, Nick, I got one for you. I was like, oh, cool. Who do you got? She goes, like, go check out that patient in in room five, whatever. so I go over there and I'm looking at the patient and this guy's just chilling. He's looking at me like, Hey man, what's up? So he looks comfortable. He's not in any distress, but he's got on a high flow nasal cannula with a non-rebreather on top of it. So Ooh, which by the way, double whammy. <laughs> yeah. And, and I didn't even know that was like, apparently this became a thing during COVID.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't It was really strange. I'm like, okay, so I, I guess we can do 130% FIRT Yeah, now. How do you
1: document that? Right? Yeah.
0: So <laughs> 80% of the time it works every time, right? So that was his case. And his stats were like 85, 86%. But he was cruising. He was chilling. So I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting. So I go and I just just kind of do a quick little, you know, not even really the head to toe. I just stand there and I'm like just looking at everything and just trying to be a, be in the situation. And I'm just talking to him and he's in no distress. He's smiling. He's like, Yeah, they keep telling me my oxygen's low. And feel fine. I'm like, okay, well, the monitor's beeping and you're at 85%. So apparently you're not fine. So the first <laughs> thing I think of is, is, all right, you got a PE. Maybe that's, that's what we're doing. Okay. So I'm going to go down that pathway in my mind of, all right, we're treating the patient for pulmonary embolism. I'm gonna put him on my list. We're going to round on him. I'm going to you know, tell the nurse, Hey, call me if he even sneezes funny, you know? So and he would desaturate to like 70% on exertion. Um, he did have clubbing, severe clubbing on, on his fingers, which was another a different telltale sign. It's like, okay, so this is something a little more chronic, right? So it's not an, an acute uh, process like a PE, but there's something else going on. So obviously, I, I see him. Okay, he's he's fine right now. There's nothing I really need to do directly. Let's go dig in the chart. And so there were a few things in the chart that stood out to me. So the last day they, they did an ABG that morning. His PaO2 and this was on you know 120% FiO2 doubled up here. His PaO2 was 47 his pH was, I think it was like 749. So he was actually a little alkalotic. So again, I went down the the pathway of, okay, this, you know, we're going to treat this guy for a PE, right? Put him on some, some anticoagulants or just, you know, follow up, give him some, give him, keep him with that supplemental oxygen. So um, one of the other things that stood out to me was his hemoglobin was 19. So I thought, huh, this is, this is really strange. So I ended up digging more, and this is where it stood out to me, where I looked up and I said, okay, well, what's his recent echo? So on his echo results, it showed that he had an atrial septal defect, and his and on an echo, you can get your pulmonary artery pressures. His was 95, and so that was That like, is
1: crazy.
0: 95?
1: Yep, I worked cardiac ICU at a really high acuity cardiac yeah. ICU, and I never saw a 95. That yeah. And he's just chilling with his 95. And
0: he's chilling, so... That's why I was like, okay, I need to call this in.
1: Can I ask one more question? Yeah. With the ABG like that, 47 PO2, how was his coloring? Like how did his skin look?
0: So this guy was, yes, he was pale. He had just the central cyanosis going on. But it was something that he had compensated for, which is what was interesting. So he wasn't tachypnic, which was kind of weird to me. He, that's why he didn't he didn't present in distress. So the two things were the cyanosis and the clubbing of the fingers, which was like, and you know, you go back and look that up. And there's you know, when you when you see clubbing, that's that's generally from a, a more chronic form of, of hypoxia. Uh, like people, I don't know, uh, patients with uh, pulmonary fibrosis might have clubbing, things like that. So those were kind of like the two indicators, but yeah, with his SAP being the way it was, but he, it wasn't like death cyanosis, but there was definitely a, 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 a,
1: a, dusky. a power
0: to him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So I was like, okay, something's not right. So is this chronic? Is this acute? So those were the things where it's like, okay, you're looking at the numbers, you're looking at the patient and I'm just like, okay, this guy needs to be on the radar so yes, the PA pressure was, was like set off all the radars to me, but I was like, okay, well, you know, that's an echo and it's not usually the PA pressures, you know, on an echo, the definitive, you know, diagnosis or the, the definitive you look at, you don't get to do a right heart cath. You gotta, you gotta either do that or put in a, a, a PA catheter to really determine that. So, but still I was like, okay, well, the echo showing a PA pressure at 95 and he's got an atrial septal defect. That's when I was like, what the heck is this? you know, when the normal PA pressures are what, like eight to eight to 15, eight to 20. Right. So mm-hmm. this is like really far off. So I think it's
1: considered hypertension if it's greater than 20. So 95 yep. is definitely
0: above yep. twenty. It's severe pulmonary hypertension. So, and when I see these cases, so I work closely with, with one of our, one of our chief pulmonologists. She's fantastic. I, I fangirl all the time when, when she's on like, sweet, talk to me, teach me something. Let's talk about it. She's one of the only ones that puts in PA catheters on the unit. And really where I work, I'm not in CVICU anymore. CVICU is on the other side of the, of the building. They're the ones that do all the PA catheters. And so when I see one, I geek out. I'm like, okay, cool. Let me touch it again. Let me, let me remember this. Cause it's just not very common in in a general or even a neuro ICU, except for patients with pulmonary hypertension. So, so I went to her, I was like, Hey doc, I got a case for you up on the floor. Check this out. And she's like, Oh yeah, no, I already know. I already read up. They already consulted me this guy, yeah, he's got, he's, and that's when she told me. She's like, he has Eisenmenger syndrome. I was like, Eisen who? And so that's when I started to, I was like, okay, let me, let me go. And I'm, I'm going to look this up. And so that's when I just kind of started geeking out on him. Like, what the heck is this? And so I'm like, well, we got to do something. Like, what are we going to do for this guy? And she was just like, there's nothing we can do. He's got a, he, he needs a, a transplant, but I mean, I don't want to like jump too far ahead on it, but in these cases, once, once they get to that Eisenmenger is kind of like the the end stage result currently right now. And what we there's only so much the limited treatment options for for that disease, unfortunately.
1: So initially, you see Losat. He's a little dusky, but he's not in distress at all. He's compensated for whatever that is. Yep. Initially, you're thinking maybe he's got a PE. I would probably have thought the same thing. Yep. How did his case evolve to the point where you're like, and now it's time to go to the ICU because? That's pretty high oxygen requirement but again you hate to move someone who's not even in distress to the icu
0: right and and then that was and that was just it that was the then it became more of like a logistics thing but it was clear that kind of like okay what are we going to do we're just going to consult with everybody we're going to he really needed to go and, and, and be sent to a, a facility that's kind of specialized in that that can that can handle that type of a case but he was too unstable. Right. So he eventually, I believe within, I think the next day, which I was off by the way, he ended up in the ICU because the doctor actually texted me because I, you know, she knew I was, I was interested in these, in these cases in this case. And she's like, Hey, yeah, we brought your guy down to the ICU. Um, we're putting a a PA cath in him. And she's like, I thought you'd like to know, because I'm the guy that, you know, I geek out on it. I want to go to all anybody (laughs) with a PA cath. Um, Oh, who's got the PA cath? Assign me to that guy because I just—I don't know. It's just I'm always interested in them. You know, you got to keep the saw sharp. You don't see them a lot, so you want to—you know—you want to take these patients. So he, yeah, he's just his oxygenation got worse to the point to where the the step down unit was like, hey, yeah, either you got to intubate this guy, we're gonna call a a rapid response or a code airway. We can't oxygenate this guy anymore, and so it's like, okay, yeah, no, he needs to come to the ICU. So when I was rapid the day before, I, I just. I always say I say I'm gonna put him on the radar, right? There's only so much we can do. A lot of what we do with rapid responses, we're gonna put him on the radar. I can't innovate the guy, but I can at least I can make all the phone calls and, and kick up all the dust so everybody starts to pay attention to this patient, right? So I put him on the radar. I was like, hey, you're gonna see this guy really, really soon then. So sure and sure yeah. enough, yeah. So we ended up in the ICU. She put a PA cath in. I think I was off for two days. I went back. And he wasn't intubated. And in fact, these patients, intubation that is not a recommended treatment because it's, you know, by the time you intubate them, you're, you're really not going to get them off of, of, right. of a tube, you know? Like it's a
1: structural problem that putting a tube yep. in doesn't necessarily fix. Right. So before we dive too much into him, can we just yeah. pause and say like, what in the world is Isominger syndrome? Because I'm sure we were like, okay, so what is it? <laughs> That's what I'd be asking. Sure. So can you just talk through like, The pathophysiology, what is going on anatomically with this syndrome?
0: So this is a congenital defect. You're born with it. Uh, In his case, it's an atrial septal defect. You can also have a ventricular septal defect that that goes into this this patho. But he had an ASD, an atrial septal defect, a hole in the septum of his atria. So usually with this, there starts with a chronic shunting of blood now from the left side of the heart to the right side. So because the pressures in the in the left atria are a little bit higher than the right side. So there's this chronic shunting that, that's occurring. And now the problem is, is now the right side of the heart, which is a low pressure system, is getting volume overloaded over time. It's starting to get too much blood flow, too much volume. So now the right side of the heart starts to hypertrophy. And so now what happens here is now the pulmonary vessels are getting overloaded. To where there is this pulmonary vascular injury so they start to become narrow more rigid and hence that's where you can progress to essentially this is what's pulmonary hypertension so now there's my understanding there's there's like five different groups of pulmonary hypertension and this is a study all in and of itself patients progress or can present with different forms of pulmonary hypertension different treatment options and so this is like in this case, I think it's it's related to like group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, but don't quote me on that. But this is an end case. Uh, what, what happens eventually to progress to Eisenmenger is like the, the, the last stage of, of one of these types of pulmonary hypertension. So the interesting thing that happens is because the right side of your heart is become so uh, volume overloaded, the pressures are become higher now. And so now there's a reversal of the shunting instead of the left to right, the shunting is going to go from right to left. So now, what's happening is you're getting deoxygenated blood shunting to the left side of your heart, going out systemically. So this is what leads to that cyanosis uh, and that that chronic hypoxia. And so and a lot of different things start happening now when when you when you've got this chronic hypoxia, your body's going to start compensating for it. So one of the things being they call it erythrocytosis, right? Which is why his hemoglobin was 19 because the body in response to this chronic hypoxia starts to stimulate the kidneys to produce more red blood cells, erythropoietin. So, And it's not polycythemia, which I looked at about because somebody corrected me. I was like, yeah, the patient's polycythemic. No, it's actually secondary polycythemia, which is just red blood cells. And so anyhow, there's an excess of red blood cells and, so, and they're not being very well oxygenated. So the problem with that now is you're going to be higher risk for blood clots. You're going to be higher risk for stroke, you're going to
1: sew in it's just like a terrible cascade like one thing led to the other so so just to review it started as a shunt from the left side to the right side which is bad but not as bad because that blood will eventually get reoxygenated and it turns into a shunt from the right side to the left side yes now you have deoxygenated blood shot out through the aorta to the entire body and that's where you actually have the, the biggest problem why he's so chronically hypoxic right and then Because of that, the body responds and says, you know what, let's make some more blood blood cells. That'll help. But then it causes clots. So it's just so many things that are combined together to make for a poor outcome for the patient. Right. All right. Thank you. This is good.
0: And now you have erythrocytosis, essentially. So with high hemoglobin levels, right, now you can have regressed to more risk for blood clots. And that's why I said in his case, he had pulmonary emboli. So you've got to be put on, now you've got to be put on anticoagulants, which has a whole other, you know, you put on lifelong anticoagulants There can be other risks, other problems. And so um, you would initially think that, okay, well then how do we treat that? What do we do for that? Right. And so some of the thought is phlebotomy, right? So you think we're going to try to, let's, we got to, we got to draw his blood. And I was looking it up and there are cases where it's not a standard first line treatment. And some of the literature actually doesn't recommend it because of the risk for iron deficiency. And so more impaired oxygen transport capacity. Is going to now cause more risk for stroke, and so you've really got to have close monitoring for for these types of things. So the you know withdrawing the blood isn't necessarily the the fix for that either, and so it just this lends itself to one of the other you know uh, risks for this, or one of the, one of the other um, increases in mortality, morbidity, and if you look it up, the these patients with Eisenmenger syndrome. Their mean life expectancy, I believe, is like 38 years old. we currently is what the literature is showing. So it's just another one of those. It's a, it's a rare case. I probably should have looked that up to find out what actually is the incidence of it. So it, it's not like it's, a, it's something that, that's common, but at the same time, it's, that's what makes it all the more interesting.
1: So we understand now why your patient was presenting a little bit dusky because of this chronic hypoxia, this shunt from the right side to the left side. You said they can live to around 38 years old but like how do they live like what do they do for them when they're not in the icu with a high <laughs> you know, flow in a hundred breather mask right. on top of it well, how do they live at home
0: i mean that's ultimately it's that's a that's a good question obviously they're going to have the goal i believe with with isermanus headroom is just to improve symptoms there's different treatments around there that, that are out there obviously oxygen in these cases you got to look for quality of life right so these patients aren't running marathons they're not even having much exercise at all any sort of strenuous exercises is actually advised against because of your your oxygen capacity so obviously different medications they're going to be put on i think things like anticoagulants you're going to be put on different uh, antiarrhythmics iron supplements and this is these are just some of the things that from what i was reading up that they have to live with they have to have a very strict medication regimen so between that meds and, and oxygen and just close monitoring i think is is kind of the mainstay for for the treatment for Eisenmenger outside of being referred for a for a heart and lung transplant that's the usually the the ultimate treatment for something like that
1: so in his case he went to the icu because we just couldn't give enough oxygen on the pcu level of care and yeah. then they put the pa catheter in like, what is the goal of therapy when they get to the ICU? Like, what can the ICU provide that, say, you couldn't at, at home or on med surge or even on PCU? What other interventions can the ICU do?
0: So, some of the treatment options. So, you're going to look at uh, pulmonary vasodilators. Okay. Um, and then you've got things like um, their they're intravenous. We saw a lot of this use also during COVID. We were giving inhaled pulmonary uh, in- and inhaled, inhaled dilators like Flolan. Yeah. We were giving those through, through the vent. Isoproteranol, I believe. And then um, sildenafil, right? That's that's the other medication treatment option. Was those phosphodiesterase inhibitors? So those are just some of those treatment options. You want to increase the blood flow. You want to increase the size of the vessel. Inhaled nitric oxide. I think there's some there's some controversial controversy with those, but I've, I've seen that as well. So these are these are some of those treatment options. Whether they are, and some of them are long term and. You know, again, I'm I'm staying in my lane, but I know at home, right? Home treatments these patients are on. I think there's another med called Bosentan, which increases the blood supply, and then yeah, that that sildenafil, um, or Viagra, which is obviously interesting medication in and of itself. So, and then yeah, aspirin, platelet inhibitors, things like that are the medications that that are used to help prolong or or to help home meds to to treat this disease. The hard thing is, especially in these in these kind of cases. And I'm sure you've seen this to patients with especially pulmonary hypertension. The focus really, I think, needs to be on goals of care, talking with the patient, talking with the family, and really looking at it is where are we at in your disease process? And so if you've got something like like pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary fibrosis, you know, something to where now you're at that point to where it's like, hey, you're going to need intubation outside of, okay, we can intubate you right now because of the low levels of oxygen, but They really need to be discussing yeah what are the goals of care what what are you looking for and if they're young sure you know i think this guy actually he was in his i think he was in his late 40s so he wasn't he was kind of beyond the mean life expectancy but that's where i think and i see a lot of that and i'm sure you do too is is where we we got to have those goals of care discussion with these physicians with the families with the patients because yeah, by the time they make it to the ICU, sure, we can put you on a vent, we can do all the things, we can put a PA catheter in you. We can do a lot of things. I don't even know where ECMO would fall into play for this. We can do all that, but should we, I think is also where that borders. It's like, just because we can doesn't necessarily mean we should. And, you know, and it depends on each, each patient. So yeah, we send him to the ICU, we put a PA catheter in him. I don't think he ended up being intubated. He had progressively deteriorated he had ICU delirium, he ended up pulling his PA catheter, not all the way out, but it was—it became another complication, another problem, right? You end up in the ICU and hypoxic. Now we're trying to sedate you. Now we're trying to calm you down. And so it's just, there's all those other risks that start to happen. And so I remember it was the issue where now we had to get all the docs to come in. and, And of course, you know what happens if you pull a PA catheter too far back. Now you have to reinsert, have a physician to reinsert it. And so it just, I just remembered that was unfortunate. It's like, man, now we're kind of set back. He started having hemoptysis, which isn't uncommon. You know, he's coughing up blood. And so it was, you want to make the treatment or you want to make it as dignifying, as comfortable as possible. But then it's like, okay, what are our goals of care here? What are we going to do? And so in his case, unfortunately, I believe he ended up passing like like two days later. It's an unfortunate case. But uh, again, I don't know. These cases are unfortunate. The path though is what's—it's intriguing. It's super interesting.
1: And I think it's important to know, like, what to expect. You know, as nurses, I know I went to nurses because I wanted to fix everybody. But to yep. know that sometimes even if the patient's on your radar and you know it's not looking good and you get early intervention and you, you know you get to the ICU before you have to intubate them, even then sometimes there's things that we just can't fix, like the structural, anatomical problems with the heart are very difficult to repair. These patients come to us at all different stages of their disease progression. So maybe they come to you early on and we can get them on a different dose of sildenafil and aspirin, like something to let them go home. They get better. Yeah. But when it gets so severe, you have to ask yourself, okay, so we were to intubate them and put them on flowlan And if we did all these things, nitric oxide, whatever, how long are we going to be doing this for? Like, would the patient want to be intubated and on these medications indefinitely or what what are their actual goals of care? I think is the question. And so it sounds like this patient ended up not getting intubated. I'm assuming he did not want to be that way indefinitely. So it is a really sad case and a sad diagnosis, but I just wanted to put it out there that these patients don't always die right away, right? They actually can live a good life, 38 years. That's a pretty good, you can get a lot accomplished in 38 years and make a big impact on the world in 38 years, but it's gonna be a challenging 38 years for sure. That's it. It's a difficult diagnosis to live with. So let's summarize. If you were giving like a quick 101, say to like a new grad on Eisenmenger syndrome or or just about elevated PA pressures in general, what would be your top clinical pearls about this diagnosis and the treatment for pulmonary arterial hypertension?
0: Obviously oxygenation, probably number one. These patients are gonna need a PA catheter just to also to kind of monitor, especially those PA pressures. You wanna get as much data as you can. Another reason why I love the ICU is because it's all about data, right? We want to get as many numbers. We want to measure as many pressures. And, and, and we want to, if, if there's an orifice, we're going to put something in it and measure it. So these patients, they're going to need enough oxygen to, to maintain them. And like we mentioned, what's going to be enough to get them to a level of, can they, can they go home on it? Can they go home on home oxygen? So those are the big ones. These patients are going to be on bed rest. We want to avoid strenuous exercise. Other things to watch for specifically, these patients are high risk for stroke. So you want to do neurochecks on these. They're also going to be on leading precautions because we're going to be giving them anticoagulants. One of the things, too, that I looked at is they're also high risk for for air embolisms. And so, one of the nursing things is, um, and we do it anyway, but you want to have air filters and, and all your IV lines. These patients are at high risk for, for air embolism. And so, these are the things that we can do to prevent that renal dysfunction. You want to have a watch and monitor their urine output. There needs to be I feel like there needs to be more emphasis on the kidneys. And I feel like we can get away from that a lot of times. And it's like so much of what we do in the ICU, we're putting these patients in in, in AKI. And it's almost like, well, the kidneys are just their ca- standard casualty of part of being in the ICU. It's like, no, we can prevent no, that. things yeah. we can do. So watch for kidney renal dysfunction, report that to the doctor, uh, monitor their urine output. These patients are also high risk for respiratory infections. So you want to maintain those, just those general precautions, you know, watch your hands. You know, things of that nature, the stuff that you already know, uh, which is the standard care, you know, in in the ICU. And then, of course, yeah, the, uh, like, especially in this case, delirium, the ABCDEF bundles, ICU liberation, whatever, you know, there's all these different, these different pushes for that. But watch for for delirium on these patients. And that should be for any patient in the ICU. You know, there's plenty of, of evidence based guidelines and treatments for maintaining patients in their circadian rhythm and just having continual conversations with them. With their family. And this is, a, you know, a lot of times it's a doctor to doctor or a doctor to patient discussion. So it's just creating that culture of like, hey, we need to be in communication. What are the goals of care? Are we moving the needle in the right direction? And then from a nursing standpoint, can we just give the patient the, the best quality of care that we can from every aspect in addition to <laughs> keeping them oxygenated, you know?
1: Yeah. I feel like a lot of times as nurses, we're kind of the primer for that discussion. Like, I know the doctor will ultimately come in and say, let's talk goals of care. Right. But I will be dropping hints and getting the family kind of thinking about what their loved one wanted for a long time before the doctor even brings that discussion up. Because I will, I don't want to just smack them in the face. I want them to be kind yep. of prepared, like, oh, this, oh, the nurse is concerned. Oh, the nurse feels like this is not looking good. Or So that they can kind of get prepared for that discussion. Certainly. That way when the doctor comes, it's not like, oh my gosh, what, what is what is he talking about? Where did this come from? But yeah, it's, those are hard conversations to be had. But I feel like because I care about patients and I don't just want them to get better, I want them to have a good life and not in their life, you know, with me pressing on their chest. And so I'm happy to have those hard conversations, knowing that the end goal is for my patient to be to have comfort. So tough ones
0: and we do we we do have tremendous influence because we spend the majority of time with with our patients we have that ability to build that rapport and so a lot of what we do in the ICU is is just that it's a big deal being able to to advocate for your patient but then yeah you build that rapport with them and their family and and you give them that that liberty to communicate with you and tell me what your needs are where where are you at in this and has this been explained to you do you really understand what's going on right now and Give them that opportunity to say, hey, if you've got any questions, ask me. I'll tell you everything. I always promote quality of life, dignity, and a meaningful recovery, right? So there's there's a lot of those little language bits that we talk about. And I think there's a, I see it time and time again, it, there's a lot of physicians that it's like, did you miss that day? Like, did they tell you, like, you need to know how to talk to your patients. You I miss don't you that day? <laughs> I just, it's so the frustrating. The goals of like,
1: care discussion training day. Yes, and
0: <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to have that. Everybody, no, They always seem to want to, I don't know how it is. I just know how it is, you know, in my facility, but it's, there just seems to be that lapse there. There's so many things that that can involve that, but it's all, a lot of times it's like, why are we delaying this? This conversation should have been had weeks ago or, you know, so I just, you know, and then now, now they're calling me the rapid response nurse to come in and take them down to the ICU. And it's like, well, no, this could have been prevented. Like you had you explained to them really where this was going to end up, but I don't know. It's also at the same time, like, it's where I like my lane. It's like, no, I'm the nurse. No, I don't have to have that discussion either because it's a lot of weight on your shoulders, you know, in a way. So I have respect it.
1: Well, I'm happy to collaborate with my physician colleagues to make that delivery as um, effective and compassionate as possible. <laughs> That's yep. a good summary yep. of that, my opinion on that one. Well, Nick, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. This is a really interesting case, not just because like, wow, it's a unique pathophysiology But a lot of my listeners will never even have this patient, but they will have patients who have pulmonary hypertension. So I feel there's a lot of nuggets and good information about how this affects the whole body that I'm glad my listeners get to learn from you. Awesome. Before I wrap up, can you just take a minute to share, like, how can people get a hold of you if they wanted to find you, say, on social media or take your course?
0: Yeah. So I have a website for the course if you're interested in earning your CCRN certification. I have a website, uh, ccrnacademy.com. You can navigate there. I also have a Facebook page, same thing, CCRN academy. I have an Instagram profile. That one is critical care academy with, with the underscore critical underscore care underscore academy. And then I have a LinkedIn page as well. You can look me up. I think that one is, I think if you look up critical care academy, you should be able to find that page as well. And so those are the kind of mainstays right now. I don't have a TikTok cause I, just yeah like come on um,
1: you don't do like dances to nursing stuff man no? i know
0: i know i have to <laughs> i have a, i have a social media manager that that's telling me the same thing like you got to be on tiktok i'm like i'm not got to go to all these new I can't, uh, I'm not a dancer. I don't know. I'm
1: right there with you, buddy. I'm right there with <laughs> you. Well, I will put all of your social media links in the show notes so my listeners can find you easily. I wanted to say too, if any of you guys are interested in taking the CCRN, Nick has actually given a coupon code just for being a rapid sponsor and podcast listener. So I'll put that also in the show notes, but it, it's Rapid10. So if you go to his website, you go to sign up, if you type in Rapid10, you'll get 10% off the cost of the course, which is well worth your money. Certification is not just a, putting letters behind your name so you look cooler. There's so much value in actually studying for the test that makes you a better, more confident and competent nurse. So I'm a huge advocate. Get certified in all the things that relate to your specialty because it will make you a better nurse. It also gives you a little more clout to say like, I actually have tested and been proven to be, I know my stuff. So highly recommend it if you're a critical care nurse out there. Well, Nick, thank you again for being on my show. It's been a great breakdown of this fascinating diagnosis. Awesome. And all things pulmonary hypertension. We will have to do it soon. Yep, thank you. Next crazy rapid response you go on, I want to hear about it. We'll record it and share it with the world.
0: Awesome. I look forward to it.
1: Thanks so much. All right. All right. So,
0: all right take care. Bye.
1: Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you liked this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence based practice is ever changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.